Okay. <laughs> You're listening to Why We Do What We Do. Hey, this is Abraham. And Ryan O. And so this is Why We Do What We Do. Yes, and today you've probably worked somewhere. You might be sitting at your job and like listening to this because we're just that awesome and time-fulfilling. <laughs> Hopefully. When it comes to, I don't know, this is derailing. The point is, <laughs> if you're at your job, if you're at some place of business, or even if you have heard of business, but you maybe aren't there, whatever, the point is that most businesses have had some level of thought and organization put into the various elements of what it takes to run a business. Or maybe right? they don't do this and you're sitting there and you're like, okay, I'm excited to talk about this or listen to this. Yeah. Because my employer just doesn't do those sort of things. Maybe. And maybe you'll find some utility in this. One in hopes. which case, there's this bittersweet thing to you sitting at your desk right now, not liking your job, but now you're going to enjoy it more. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> and if if businesses did not put this kind of care and attention into developing what it takes to organize a lot of people doing the same sort of activity, then usually the ensuing chaos will kill that business. Yes, I have uh, been in both. Yeah. I've been both an active member and a passive member in both as well. Right. Both making it work and uh, accidentally killing it off. <laughs> okay. Rest now, in peace, second business. What's important to note, though, is that although we've already talked about business and we're going to be talking about business a lot throughout this episode, that what we're talking about does not necessarily apply only to business. It really applies to any group activity requiring a group effort to execute some mission where people are working together. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be either continuously, so an ongoing group that has something they're always doing, like they're producing something, or it's just this one-time gathering of people, like we're going to get together this once and we're going to do this one cool thing and that's it. Yeah. Either way, you can apply these same sort of principles and ideas, right? So it could be like this uh, this podcast. We had to get together, right? Yeah. And work together and produce something and seeing what it is and driving our our, our own behavior towards this mission. Um, and the other one that you described is maybe like a conference or a gathering or a right. meetup or a summit or something like that. Yeah. A one-time thing where you still need to be really clear on what it is that you're going for and what you're doing and what the community is really all about, right? Or people maybe collaborating to write a book or something. Uh, but yeah, no, the, you're, you're exactly right. And so what we're talking about then is called organizational behavior management. Or we may refer to it as OBM. Yeah. And this is also referred to as like organizational psychology. Um, and we aren't going to talk exclusively about industrial organizational psychology, but that is also related to what we're talking about. Yes. Um, and these all fall into the category of an application of behavior psychology to a workplace environment. Okay. Yes. And now with IO, they use a little bit more of the cognitive psychology to apply, but it does depend on where you're working because some people, they call it the industrial organization and they're still using more behavior principles. Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, the fact that we're talking about is we're applying, just generally speaking, psychology to some kind of organizational setting with people working together. Okay? Okay, so let's start with a little bit of history about this because I just I just think this is super fascinating. It, and also, it's pretty new, which is kind of cool. Yeah, it's, it's very new. Um, so, uh, 1960s-ish? Am yeah. I right here? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, a man named Owen Aldous, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, in 1961, he published an article called Of Pigeons and Men. And in this article, he was really recommending that we apply those behavioral psychology principles that had been well established in research up to this point in places like the workplace because people hadn't really been doing that yet. And that's not to say that 
workplaces didn't have some system for managing and organizing their activities, but it at least hadn't been talked about with respect to involving in the psychology angle, especially from the behavioral psychology point of view. Yeah, because there's some big books like How to Win Friends and Influence People that came yeah. way before then, right? The Dale Carnegie book. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. All right. Now, a society of the same general purpose of this applying um, those principles to workplace settings developed um, around the similar time. Um, and they were called the National Society for Programmed Instruction, later the International Society for Pro Performance Improvement. They're still under that name. Yep. And if anyone's looking for just like nerdy, old, cool books, go dig around in that society for sure. Yeah. And uh, ISPE for short. Um, and then after, so this is again, this is the 1960s. In 1972, a man named Dale Brethauer introduced a behavioral systems approach in a book called Behavior Analysis in Business and Industry, A Total Performance System. And I'm going to talk more about what a systems approach is when we get to more of the like specifics of this. Cool. Yeah. And then there was uh, Aubrey Daniels came into the scene, right? Yep. He's still around. Uh, great guy, actually. I've met him a couple of times. As well. Yeah. And he started an organizational behavior management business in 1978 that later turned into Aubrey Daniels International or ADI. And this business is still around. And as far as I can tell, he's kind of killing it. Yeah. Like <laughs> he's, he's doing really well. The business yeah. is doing well. And they do a lot of stuff working with various organizations to help improve their performance. He's consistently looking to expand, uh, help new populations. Uh, you see him on donation lists when it comes to development grants and things like that. Sure. So, yeah, I would be willing to bet he's, he's doing pretty well. Um, and in 1982, so um, about four years after this, he published one of his most well-known um, books, and he's published many, 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 many books over the yes. years. Uh, but one of his most well-known was called Performance Management, and I think it's now in its fifth or sixth edition. Yeah, there's like a that. few. Yeah, there's, I've got a couple on the shelves. So it's still running, which is great. And uh, this has an overall uh, view of the background of what he calls performance management, which we're going to go into in a little bit more depth, as well as specific strategies for applying that to a workplace setting. Yes. So as like with anything else, there was some professional publication outlets that started to shape up, right? Yeah. So there, there are several um, peer-reviewed journals that exist. One of the big ones is called the Journal of Organizational Behavior Management, which makes sense yeah. <laughs> as a title, I think. Um, and there's others as well. There's um, a Performance Improvement, I believe, is one, and, and some other ones, or Performance Improvement Quarterly, something. What about reviews of like this overall approach? Like, How effective is it? Yeah, so I think a lot of people, when they hear about this, they want to know, does it work? And uh, Solid question. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and where are the data? And there's been several reviews. Um, I picked two to talk about today. One was uh, and mostly because they were so recent. There was one in 2001, and what they were looking at is how many um, applications of this OBM, the strategies for OBM, how many of them demonstrated improvement. And so out of all the studies they reviewed, they found that 58% of them uh, demonstrated some level of improvement, 41% of them um, had some mixed results. So some improved, some didn't. Not and too then, surprised there. Right. And yeah. which really, I mean, if you look at those two numbers, you're at 99%. So the remaining 1% showed no effect. So the overall outcome of this looks fairly positive. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it influences stuff. And we just need to figure out that other 48 or 41%. Yeah. And just figure out, you know, make, what make what, sure we got to go in the right direction. Yeah. When it, when it didn't work. And then another review was interested in like, okay, well, we see that this many applications improved, but by how much? If they went from like 
you know, a very small amount of improvement, then maybe it's interesting that they improved, but they didn't really demonstrate a lot of improvement. So this other review wanted to see, on average, how much improvement was there. And uh, th this uh, this author actually found an impressive 54.5% improvement on average, with some of them as high as in the 90% improvement um, for uh, some of the studies that they reviewed. And that was done in 2013. Yeah, kind of crazy. Yeah, so that's, that's pretty strong. That's showing that, you know, if you were to see a industry improve their performance standards um, or measures of whatever it is that they're interested in by 54%, I mean, that's a significant jump yeah. in whatever their production is, right? Reminds me of Elon Musk. Yeah. <laughs> All of his endeavors. We're going to reuse these things. Yeah. Increase it by tenfold, yeah. hundredfold. Lots, lots, of, lots of growth. Yes. Okay. So I guess that's just some of the overall background and and a little bit of the research on what's going on with this let's go ahead and dive into how this works what what's involved in this process all right so for those who don't know abraham and i went to school together um at various times at least under the same university i don't think we ever had a formal class together no i don't think we did yeah um but you actually formally went for uh, a certificate in this, right? Or part of your degree was in organizational behavior management, correct? Yeah, it was, yeah. Now, mine was not, I, but I found myself like, do I do it? Do I not? I'm not sure. And then I was like, well, I don't know. Like, I, I think this would be valuable. And then I realized if I really wanted to affect change and work with, especially with groups of people, and at the end of the day, we're always in this business setting, right? No matter where we're at. So much of the time. So um, for me, OBM and this organizational behavior in general just became very interesting because it was like, if I wanted to know how to work the most effectively as possible that I could in an environment, I just start to learn how to bring these sort of principles into these group settings. Well, and that's perfect. And that really brings us right into starting to describe the process of how this works. And by starting with the overall idea of OBM is that it's applying these well-known learning principles to large groups of people in these sort of organizational settings. Yeah. Okay. And so on its surface, this is really hardly different in any way from applying these principles to like animals or in any other settings involving changing human behavior such as you also see these in interventions with children with an autism diagnosis. Mm -hmm. uh, these same sorts of principles have been applied to education settings, that sort of thing. So it really doesn't vary. It's not like the principles are any different. It's just what are the specific strategies for applying these principles when you're dealing with something and, and this is what's kind of remarkable about this is that these simple principles seem to work with these really like highly proficient, intelligent, languaging adults. Yes. And that's one of the things that people have argued about and still argue that they, they argue that these behavioral principles won't work with people who have language or these the high levels of cognition. And it's because of that cognition, which circumvents the effect of operant conditioning or operant learning principles. And it's this is just a bad thing to say when you're talking <laughs> about like, <laughs> well, it's sorry, just, this only works with humans that don't do X, Y, and Z. Right. Like, come on. Well, I think, they're not it, wrong. If the that, data is there, cool, but it's not. Right. Well, well, and the pro I think just thinking about the fact that language is really important in understanding how people do the things that they do. Yeah. And that if you fail to incorporate that into your description, which the behavioral approach doesn't fail to do that, but it's also not made explicit sometimes. Yeah. That, that people can look at that and think, well, you're not accounting for language and cognition. Um, and 
and what we're seeing at least, and I think that's the conversation that we're going to continue to have and we'll yeah. maybe go in more depth in specifically, but what was great about this cool organizational behavior piece is that it's sort of showing, well, they do really work and really mm-hmm. without very much modification overall, like you can, you can still apply this, um, to these settings and have it be really effective. Yeah. So some places, um, manufacturing was like one area where this really started, right? Oh uh, yeah. This is definitely huge in manufacturing. This has also been applied to general retail. I've worked in nonprofit settings and applied things like this. Um, some more specific ones is, um, just the, uh, behavior management around things like safety. Yes. So think about industries such as, uh, oil drilling and such, right? Yeah, absolutely. I know there's a lot of applications there. I yeah, know, huge amounts of safety there. Um, being in mine, an area where mining is very big here yeah. in Nevada, uh, I know that there's, I have some family that also work in these settings and they experience programs that have to do with mine safety. Yeah, and medical professionals often need a lot of safety. There's there's many professions where safety is one of the key features of, of that work environment. And in many of those places, this type of technology has been applied. And then there is, of course, the overarching theme that needs to be encompassed in anything where you're dealing with humans and behavior and life in general, which is the ethical considerations. Um, and we'll go into that a little bit. Um, but besides that, and, and I mean, there are specific... I want to say not necessarily domains, but there are, are, are topics that are brought up consistently, which is really good to see about the ethics of applying these in these workplace settings. Yes. Um, and then beyond that, I mean, there are still dozens, if not hundreds of other types of organizations and settings where this has been applied um, and continues to be applied. And again, because it's effective and um, and there's good data. And, you know, the one thing that... I don't know that we've really stressed here is this is not just about make the business richer. Oh this, yeah. This no. is largely about make it a better place to work for people. Yeah. More enjoyable, more efficient. I always got really interested in the efficiency. So I worked consistently in situations where you constantly went home saying, I don't have enough time for everything I need to get done. And right. At the end of the day, you're delivering a, a service to somebody such as folks with disabilities and Sleeping on that's hard, right? Sure. Like not saying like like running into inefficiencies and you know you could be doing more. Um, so this really was interesting to me as to like how do we use our dollars to go farther than we did last time, last month, last week, last year, right? Right. Well, and this will come up when we talk about ethics a little bit more, but... Yeah, it's not just like get your employees to work harder for less. It's actually really to make the job as easy and as efficiently executable as possible. Yeah. Which really should also result in happier employees that feel competent and safe in their job and that things get done in a timely manner and people feel empowered to do their job correctly and make decisions yeah. that will allow them to do it the right way. I helped a HR department and worked with some others to integrate some new software, for example, that not only was cheaper on the front, so it saved us those like costs up, up front, but it was, it was also easier for the staff to implement some of the things that they needed to do. Um, and simple things, entering That's your awesome. time card and like reviewing those sort of things. Oh yeah. So at the end of the day, there was uh, a lot of cash that was saved that could be redistributed elsewhere for the mission. Yeah. Um, and over years of doing that, like three years of doing that, there's actually a few different wage increases that we were able to do as a result as well. That's awesome. Um, that's, yeah. I mean, that's a great way to use it. And I, and I think 
I mean, again, just the overall point of this is like we're we're doing we're trying to make this um, the best possible place to work, and it really does a lot of the times focus on the well-being of the employees and recognizing that the business would not exist without the people who are there to make that business exist. Yes. and that includes all levels from the leaders down to the lowest paid or lowest responsibility position inside yeah. of that organization. And so if everyone is working together, the business does a lot better. Mm-hmm. And when you have those organizations that are structured around things like competition and secrets and lies and putting other people down, like those businesses, they just don't last very long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they, they, <laughs> they kind of look like an explosion where they'll kind of flare up really bright for a second and then collapse down on themselves like a dying star. Sight and Ron and all those other things, <laughs> right? right? Exactly. Yeah. So let's go into some of the specific elements of organizational behavior management. And this is kind of broken into like a domain or application strategy and then like specific types of strategies. And they're not, they're kind of just thrown in here. Around. Yeah, we'll just go through them all. A little bit of hodgepodge. Yeah. And honestly, I tried to organize them a little bit better when in my notes, when I was preparing for this, it's just that there's so many different ways to talk about it. I finally just decided like, let's just go through them <laughs> yeah. in the order that they seem to come up. Here we go. So the first one, performance feedback, that is huge in any journal article that I've pretty much ever read or book on this topic. Yeah, and this one goes back to that um, Aubrey Daniels book that we talked about, which is going to be linked in the show notes. There are several components to um, this this performance management part, but one of the most foundational and common elements of OBM that you'll see kind of anywhere is called performance feedback. And so um, this is defined as information that follows a performance and describes the level or quality of that performance. So okay, you notice dig. that yeah, this does not make any comments about whether or not this is positive reinforcement or like coercive or anything like that. It really says it's just information and it describes the level or quality of that performance. And now there are specific elements of that feedback that's going to make it more or less effective. But just simply starting with what is it and then where do we go from there, right? Yeah, and one big thing here is the distinction of what it's not. And I see this written out a lot, right? Yes, absolutely. So this is not like a performance appraisal that's like once a year, right? Right, yeah. Performance appraisals, and I actually had to take a class on this. Um, That was not my favorite thing in the world. Um, But performance appraisal does refer more to these periodic reviews and they're generally corrective and critical in nature and they don't have to be but these are like let's see what after three months we're going to do like a check we're going to do we have a checklist and we're going to do a spot check i'm going to go through and we're yeah. going to see how things are going you feel like you're on the chopping block that yeah it often Usually. feels like this and the other thing i mean aubrey daniels gives some examples in his book when he talks about this and says one of the some of the evidence we have for why this isn't a great strategy uh-huh. is because almost every company that tries to use performance appraisal implements a brand new version of that system every two to three years. Mm-hmm. So it's like they'll try it for a couple of years, doesn't really work, try something else for a couple of years, doesn't yeah. really work. And that's not to be overly critical of the performance appraisal system, um, but it's just that that system is based ar- around these really evaluative rankings, um, which often can look it feels bad to be in that position and then it all of the person doing it as well as the person receiving it. Yeah. And it feels like a lose lose. And I think uh, as Daniels points out, one of the, the most significant breakdowns in this is that we're presuming that after 12 months, that will be effective for changing the behavior that happened for the previous 12 months Yeah, for the next 12 months. Yeah. Right. Like that's just, that's way too much distance between the, the performance of your employees and the feedback on that performance. Yeah. Which is a huge point here. And that's immediacy is key when it's, when we're delivering feedback. Yes, absolutely. And I, I mean like, uh, if, if, if I were to say something incorrect now, feedback is now. 
right? It is that quick. Boom, boom. Yes. Yeah. Generally, as quickly following the performance as possible is the recommendation. Yep. And sometimes that that obviously can't be within a minute or even five minutes. Sometimes it's within a a day or two or something. But if the the more you can close that gap to get feedback on performance, the better you're going to be. Yeah. The more effective that that feedback is going to be. And so understanding why this might work is a little bit complicated because it kind of depends on the the nature of the situation, which I know that's that answer that kind of sucks. It depends. Uh But I mean, for the most part, what is generally described as why this might work is that it may change the way the performance is being executed while all of the relevant features of that context are present. Okay. So just thinking about if you just did something in your job, let's just say you just wrote a report. Yeah. And then you get, turn that report in and then within an hour your boss comes over and goes over that report. That's still fresh for you, right? Mm-hmm. You're still there and you have some feedback on it. So now you're more likely to change your performance the next time you're doing a report because that feedback was so timely. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um in addition to changing um, those performances, feedback may also serve to simply maintain the already good performance by acknowledging this thing that you did was perfect. Look at, here's all the specific details, yeah. which is another element of this, but here's all the specific details of the things that you did that were exactly correct. And then that, now you know that like, oh, cool, I wasn't totally sure as I was doing this, but next time I know that the things I did now, I'm going to do those again. So orienting toward this is the... Not just what needs to change, but also what do you need to know to continue to do it correctly? Yeah, dig. And now there's some other things in here where they talk about um, what's called the sandwich method. Have you heard about this? Yes, I have. Um, Also referred to as the crap sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) And the idea about this is that... Here's something good. Yeah. Here's something that you'd need to do a lot better. Right. And you're not so good at. And But here's something good to end it on a positive note. And I'm out of here. Yeah. So Enjoy the general, your crap sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the general idea is that the the criticism or the critical feedback is squished in between two pieces of praise um, or or kind feedback. Did you look at this in your thesis or any projects? I didn't. Or no. was that a colleague? Done yeah, it? that was one okay. of one of the one of my colleagues did look at this, and other people have tried to look at this too. And in general, what I am what I have seen from the research is that. It kind of doesn't matter, like yeah. the sandwich method. Um, what it, it is useful to have a high level of praise in there, um, but it just sandwiching a criticism in between two things might not necessarily be helpful. And, and I really think that anytime you have this like consistent pattern, like I would just be like, get to the point. Right. Come on, Abraham. Yeah, what do I need to do better? That's one thing that people have brought <laughs> up is that it feels ingenuine because you you know that's what the what they're doing. Yeah, and the other one thing that can happen too is if you end on that positive note, that might actually downplay the nature of the corrective feedback you gave. So they're like, well, I guess what I did wasn't so bad. So if I do it again this this the same way, then eh, that's all right. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I probably I'll try and change it, but if I don't, then no big deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so which might not necessarily be the case. Now, there's some other research that I, I would really like to spend a whole episode on digging into the research, but this ratio of corrective feedback to praise feedback. Yeah, this slightly, yeah, this would be a good topic. Kind of drives me crazy. <laughs> well, I 12 think, to 1, 5 to 1, 8 to 1, 6 yeah. to 1. There's four a to lot one. of misinformation about it, and there is actually some research that we can dig into that would help make it more clear. Um, but the general recommendation, and not saying why, but the general recommendation that is given is that um, a 4 to 1 or 5 to 1 positive to corrective feedback is what's recommended. Why we do what we do is not answering the why question today. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's just the what we do what we do. (laughs) 
<laughs> or something. Now, another idea or the, the last thing to sort of wrap up in this concept of feedback is this is associated with the concept of consequences. And now this technically refers to anything that follows a behavior and then changes the frequency of that behavior, which is to say it either happens more, happens less, or you could even say happens in a different way. Now, but in colloquial terms and even generally when we're talking about organizations, as far as I could tell, this really is still referring to that critical feedback and the need for corrective actions. And sometimes that involves these sort of punitive systems like being written up or sometimes monetary loss or loss of responsibility. Um, those are types of things that can exist that can function similar to feedback. Again, going back to our definition of feedback as being information that follows a performance and describes the level or quality of that performance that can have this effect where it is punitive. Yes. But again, most of the time the recommendation is make it positive and try and highlight what is appropriate and what needs to happen more rather than focus on that negative stuff. Yeah, roughly a five to one. Yes, roughly a five to one. All right, so this reminds me of some things I learned in a book uh, called The One Minute Manager. Yeah. This Did you is, read that one? Yeah, um, this, uh, this one is actually a general recommendation, I think, because it's so short and super easy to read and it's like crazy cheap too. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'd recommend looking at it. Um, I don't know how much it is on Amazon right now or wherever you get your books, but 10 to 12 ish bucks max. Uh, max. Yeah, yeah. I think I paid less than a dollar for mine, but 100 pages. It's like the size of a larger iPhone for the <laughs> most part nowadays. <laughs> like an iPad mini. You could almost yeah. fit this in your pocket. And it's uh, the thing is, the books, again, it's super simple to read. And the whole point of this and why I'm talking about this with respect to feedback is. They generally give this strategy for interacting with employees from a manager position where you are empowering employees to make decisions for themselves that are, you know, as long as they're competent to do so, that they're able to do so. Yeah. That they don't feel like they have to come to you for every little thing, but yeah. that they can look, you basically, uh, you give them the skills to identify the nature of the circumstances that they're in so that they can make the decisions that they're capable of making. Yes. You're not going to ever ask your employees to do something that they're not trained or capable to do or that they shouldn't have that amount of responsibility for. Um, but still this book... Hopefully. Hopefully. I mean, <laughs> that, that's the idea of the one-minute manager, I mean, yeah, is yeah, to yeah. capitalize on what are the strengths of your employees and how can you empower them to use those strengths. Cool? Love it. All right. All right next section. All right. So another significant portion of this OBM approach is simply focusing on antecedents. And what do yes. I mean by that? So the things that happen before whatever behavior of interest that we're talking about, right? Yeah. Whatever response. So these are often what we talk about as our cues, right? Making sure we have yeah. appropriate cues put in place. One thing to kind of paint the picture, I said that my family worked in the mining industry. Um, a incorrect could result in somebody detonating TNT when they shouldn't be. Uh, someone dying, an incorrect could be, I don't know if everyone's ever been at those sites, but they have like 12 foot tall tires yeah. on these things. And like someone can like that, they can fall over and crush somebody. He can get ran over. He can like literally fall off of a ledge if things aren't done correctly and stable. Like there's just, there's safety hazards everywhere. Right. Yeah. And so there's a ton of money, time, attention, care, resources thrown up front as to have we done everything we can to train people to identify um, these sort of antecedent situations. Yeah. So the point is that 
antecedent in this case, as you mentioned, refers to putting something in place to prevent the problem from ever happening in the first place. So this could be a prompt, some sort of sign, a checklist, right? Yeah, and checklists are an extremely common one. Uh, there's a book by uh, called The Checklist Manifesto that really um, espouses the utility of the checklist. Uh -huh. And the checklist has a lot of um, important features to it. It's just important to also point out that it's not the end-all, be-all of how yeah. to intervene with people. Um, <laughs> but it, it's a really great tool, at least, for taking that preventative measure of here are all the steps that you need to follow before you uh, even execute this task or as you execute this task so that you can make sure that you have reduced the risk as much as you possibly can. Yes, exactly. So if you're going to hop in a plane and go flying, I would expect a checklist. We've probably got that down pretty well. We know yeah. what to do in what order, right? And even the most seasoned pilots, they still follow the checklist every single time they get in the cockpit of a plane because you can't allow for even a tiny amount of drift because you are talking about hundreds of lives that are are in the that are at stake for this. Another part of this antecedent idea is the feed forward. So we talked about feedback as information that follows something that I've never heard like, this one. Oh really? No. Yeah. So feed forward is uh it's setting the expectation for what something is uh, before the performance occurs. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. I okay. mean, this is basically I feel like I was missing out an entire area of psychology. No, no, no. <laughs> it's, it's basically an instruction, but the, the point being, especially if you understand what is a mistake people are likely to have yep. to get communicating information about that ahead of time so that they don't have to contact the mistake and get the feedback. It's telling them what to do. How's this different from setting them up for success? Uh, it's not. That's exactly what it is. Actually, okay. it is that that's the whole point of this. And honestly, that's the point of all of these um, with the prompts, the signs, the checklist is that you are trying to ensure that people are able to do their job correctly the first time. Yep. And it, I mean, now it's especially important in high stakes jobs where lives are at risk. But this is also useful in jobs where it's, it's not that lives are at risk, but people still would rather have their job done correctly and not have to receive feedback on their performance if they've done yeah. it incorrectly. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? And it's just, you know, that's a respectful humanistic approach. And so one of the specific recommendations are to try and answer those WH questions of when you're doing that, that feed forward stuff is to tell them specifically who, what, when, where, why, and how um, about the performance that is expected of yeah. them. So just think about the specific details that are necessary and maybe use those questions to guide developing the kind of instructions that you're going to give. Yeah. And to bring back up Aubrey Daniels, he worked on, I don't know if there's other colleagues involved, but a thing called a picnic analysis, right? Yeah. Um, and the idea was he was bringing in these antecedents, also the behavior and then the outcomes as well. Yeah. To kind of give an easy, loose framework to understand why people might be doing what they do. Right? Yeah. Yeah. This is just a a very general approach for looking at the context in which some of these behaviors occur um, in a performance setting and using that to try and figure out how do we then approach that um, that context. And there's a lot. Again, this is just like the feedback thing or the checklist thing. This isn't the end all be all of solving perform, uh, performance issues or organizational issues, but it's something that can be really useful. And the picnic refers to um, there's only really three components is either positive or negative mm -hmm. immediate or delayed or certain or uncertain yep okay and so if it's um a pick or a pic then it's positive immediate and certain yep and people are most likely to do things when the outcome of that action is positive immediate and certain yeah right? and so thinking about people who choose smoking over not smoking 
if they are smokers, then the experience they have is positive because it feels good. It's yep. immediate because it happens right away and it's certain because they've done it every time and they know. Yeah. And the, win. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the effects of things like lung cancer are um, negative. They are delayed mm -hmm. and they are uncertain. Yeah. So it's like that's not necessarily going to be a contributing outcome because it's so far removed from uh, that activity. And so that's, again, it's a useful thing to think about when you're looking at those organizational settings and how you can just apply this little bit of a filter that helps you orient to what might be some of the relevant features of that. Yeah, it's a, I would say it's a great starting point. By no means is it like the, the end all be all of understanding why we do what we do in the workplace. Yep. Okay, so Another way of looking at this is called the systems approach. Ooh, I kind of like this systems analysis. Yeah, yeah, and that's a, that's another word for it. And a lot of this came from the looking at the way that people interact with and how they structure their organizations. Some people noticed that there was sort of this siloed effect, and what that means is that the departments became so compartmentalized that it was almost an us versus them sort of thing. You had marketing <laughs> department versus your research and development department versus Been your there. sales department and that they all like don't communicate with each other and they don't cooperate with each other and they all work as like a team versus the other team when they're all part of the same organization. Working Trying to toward work the towards the same mission too. Exactly. Yeah. And the managers can fall into the trap of, and again, they're just people that are doing the best that they can, but they fall into the trap of treating them as if they are separate organizations that don't have lines of cooperation. Yeah. So is the so if this is a tiered hierarchical kind of siloed system, is the recommendation then to go more flat and horizontal? Yeah, exactly. So if 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 it was normally vertical, then the recommended approach in a systems analysis is to look at it from a horizontal approach. And what this really emphasizes is understanding the customer, the product, and the overall workflow. And that workflow includes all those different departments. And it also specifically talks about the inputs and outputs. Like that's a huge piece of this. Yes. And so they're looking at how various groups or departments input to other groups and that the outputs are from those groups and the initial group as well. So how they interact, how they cooperate, how does it all work together? Reminds me of Geigo. What's that? Garbage in, garbage out. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the idea is like you need to like look at the fine detail of like what information is flowing from where to where. Yeah. Because um, it, it all ends up impacting and just kind of uh, could trigger all sort of hiccups throughout your entire system. Right. Well, and so... Another thing that's so useful about looking at it in this way, really, as you just said, is that you can sort of start to identify where are their breakdowns? Where are their inputs that don't exist but should? Where are their uh, maybe outputs that aren't really contributing to this and it's sort of wasted time and effort? Yeah. So you can identify all these different parts of the workflow where things are less than ideal and try and optimize that system so the process can be more streamlined and more cooperative and then people are working together to facilitate the mission of that organization. Yeah, so one thing that I've found that's like crucial here is like not only do you need to understand all of the different variables going on in the system, um, but the leadership and those sort of change agents in the organization are the key people to be working with and getting on board. Yeah, that's something that they talk about a lot is that if you can change the leadership behavior, then you can often change the way the entire organization moves. Yes. And again, I don't want to point the blame and just say managers are at fault here. A lot of times they're doing the best that they can. But sometimes you can give them skills that allow them to structure the organization in just a more efficient way and make it a better work experience for themselves and their employees. Now, there are some interesting elements of understanding how the organization operates because 
when you look at that complex of a system where there's so many inputs and outputs and so many people with all of their different experiences and personalities trying to get along together to work towards something and maybe they don't sometimes, there is this really interesting book that was published called uh, Paradox of Organizational Change. Yes. And uh, they talk about these the, the different paradoxes where it is dynamic but constant. Um, and what they mean is that organizations are dynamic places that are sort of moving with the economy and the times mm-hmm. and the incoming and outgoing personnel. But the process for accounting for change actually remains constant. The Especially the monitoring aspect of this and the, uh, the philosophy underlying how to understand why that change takes place, that part doesn't actually change. But the organization itself is very dynamic. Yes. Another part of this is that the environmental context in which people work is very complex. You've got language, you've got memory, you've got all these learning history, you've got muscle memory from performing the task, um, all of these things that are involved in this complex environment. And yet a lot of the solutions to change some of these things and to help improve them or make them safer or whatnot, um, they're really simple solutions that can be put in place that often are just one or two little changes that make a world of difference. And then the last one is that you have this chaos versus control. And what can happen is you can never control all of the variables that are relevant, all of the factors that are contributing to how an organization works. And so it feels chaotic. Because yeah. there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. And probably people who who are at the upper levels, even in really well-organized um, businesses, they can feel that chaos. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, when you have these good procedures in place, then the change actually proceeds in a pretty orderly and predictable way. Yeah, I would totally agree. This is a role that I slowly worked myself and found myself in for, I don't know, probably like half of more of my day job now. Yeah. It's kind of weird cool. reflecting back on. Um yeah, I would totally agree with this. It is every it's, it seems impossible to be able to understand every moving part. Not that you always do, right? Yeah. Um, and this to add to the chaotic part of it, you can implement a change, and then it affects things that you weren't planning on it affecting at all, and kind of create these own hiccups in your own system. Yeah. So you're like, all right, we have these ten problems. This will cover five of them, and it actually fixed those five, but it added two more. Yeah. And you're like, <laughs> okay, net three. What's the next thing? <laughs> and I actually have a whole section about that when I talk about. Um, some of the outcomes, the unanticipated outcomes of these these things when we get to the ethics piece. So, okay, cool. I think so we'll that, bring, bring that back up. Yeah. And this next part, is, I think that you are especially um, well-versed in is this pay-for-performance thing. So what's that? Yes. So pay-for-performance was an area that I got really interested in because it kind of came about when I was getting into just how do I work with, with teams in an in a organizational setting? And I was like, well, there's this idea of if you can pay people for the outcomes that they're supposed to be producing, as opposed to just the time, right, of them them engaging whatever task it is, like maybe you could get more uh, of an efficient system and a happier employee out of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so one big book that I ran into was The Sin of Wages. We definitely have to link to that book. Have you read it? Yeah, I have. Yes. Um, and he describes in here, he brings in the total performance system, correct? Yeah. So the total performance system, I'm going to quote directly from his book because, I mean, it's, it's his words. All right, Abernathy. Great. And so he says the total performance system is described as having components, which include the performance scorecard, profit indexed performance pay and positive leadership. So I think those three things are the biggest differences as like if you, you need to have those three critical features for a total performance system. Awesome. So, the first one, the performance scorecard. This is saying uh, essentially what are the bare minimum expectations for your job? 
which you're going to be meeting, but also what are the things that we want to see a little bit more of. And then the second part comes in here, and we're going to index whatever profit that we can in the legal infrastructure that we have in our organization. It functions differently depending on like whether or not you're in a non-for-profit and if you're a for-profit, different corps and whatnot. But we're going to link your performance on those things to whatever is made in the organization. Um, and then the last part is this, you've hit on this, the positive leadership, right? Yeah. Like focusing on whatnot. Now, it's, it sounds like this could become this really unfair, coercive system if it's like you feel like you're working too hard for the money that you're getting. But most of the time, if this is implemented correctly and um, when it has been implemented correctly, that people tend to really like this because they are so much in control of what they earn. Yes. And so they can they they will work independently and make the choice to work as hard as meets whatever they kind of want to do. And then they get paid exactly in compensation with that. So for those people that might be listening to this who work in a place where you see the other person over there who seems like they barely do anything at all and they're um, they're making the same amount of money you are and you're working super hard that you that might be really frustrating to you. Yeah. Um, that it feels like, you know, why should you work hard and if they're getting, you know, paid the same amount. And this system then capitalizes on like you can slouch slack off and slouch and work as little as you want. You just won't get paid very much. Yeah. And that person who's working really hard gets paid quite a bit more. Uh, commensurate with how much work they're actually producing. Yeah, so typically they're set up where there's some sort of base salary that is there right. to kind of meet the minimum regulations and for whatever setting it is that you're working in. Which is important. Yes. <laughs> Can't just not pay people. <laughs> yes, and then um, and then from there, based on your position is typically how it's set up. There's a specific core card that links to certain outcomes and organizational strategies and goals. Which is great. Yep. All right. And so there is sort of a difference here where you, this doesn't happen very often now, but there are um, these jobs called piece rate work. Um, and the point is that you get money or uh, you get compensated basically for every product that you produce. And it could be a lot of money or very little money, depending on the time and effort and resources it takes to make that thing. Mm -hmm. So just thinking about people who are in a factory compiling an object of some kind, they might decide, oh, I'm going to sleep in today. I'm going to come in around 12 and work for four hours. Then I make a hundred bucks doing that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, or maybe, you know, a little less. That's pretty good compensation yeah <laughs> um, or they're like i'm gonna get there at 6 a.m and i'm gonna work until they kick me out at 8 p.m and i'm gonna make a thousand dollars today yeah i don't even know if that's possible but the point being that they have so much control over the amount of work that they do that they um, are sometimes often more likely to choose to work harder because they can earn more money doing that right yeah and a lot of one of the things that's pointed out in here is that when you pay people for their time what you get from them is their time yes and if you pay people for their work then what you get from them is their work yes and um, I was actually in this really interesting situation that I didn't quite understand with respect to this, and I feel like I do now, where I was salaried. But what was interesting about my salary position is I had a certain amount of expected work to get done. And as long as I got that work done, I was done. I could yeah. just go home. <laughs> so my incentive was like show up early, work as hard and as fast as I possibly can and go home at noon and be done for the rest of the day. Yeah. And like I could pull that off sometimes. There were many times I was home by two or three because, you know, I showed up and I worked as hard as I could to get all of my work done in a timely manner so that I went home. And like that system was really effective at getting me to work super hard. And I loved it because I was yeah. <laughs> getting paid and I was you know, the same amount. And I was able to spend actually quite a bit of time at home um, or doing other things that I needed to do 
because I could manage my own behavior that way. I've worked on that side, but I've also like probably you as well been on the other side of that as well to where there's just so many demands being thrown at you that you're just working over forever and ever and ever. Right. right? And that, that is how the salary system can totally be abused as well. Um, but otherwise that's, that's an important part of it. And then I think another important part of the pay for performance system is this really frequent um, assessment of performance so that pay can be um, modulated pretty quickly based on how performance is going. Yeah, it takes a lot of coordinated effort in the organization to pull these sort of things off. We've been working for about three years in a nonprofit that I work for on trying to position ourselves to be able to implement like something that's pretty close to something like this. Yeah, It looks a little different as a different field because it's a nonprofit and you can't uh, profit share in those situations. Sure, But you can, through uh, some very clear legal um, infrastructure that's set up, do some similar things and still motivate employees in that sense. Yeah, I mean, I think for the most part where this has been implemented, people tend to really enjoy the pay for performance system, mm-hmm. but that's not to say that that's the only way or even the best way to, to make every business work. And especially think about those people who their ability to work depends on people showing up to that business yeah. like in a retail industry. Mm-hmm. If no one comes in the day that you come into work and you can't sell anything and you don't really like, there's nothing for you to do. Then it's like you go there and put in your time, but you get like, you can't earn any money no matter how hard you would have worked given the opportunity. And so maybe that's not necessarily the best type of um, organization to have the system in place in. Yeah. All right. So that's pay for performance. Now performance management, the other side. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and this goes back to that Aubrey Daniels book that we talked about and he mentions feedback quite a bit in there. And he really starts by talking about what is performance management. And he describes it as the, this is a system that is designed specifically to bring out the best in people. Also the title of one of his books. (laughs) Brilliant. Um, and I mean, this is really, uh, supposed to be a humanistic approach. This is like make this a positive work environment where people in, you know are happy to be at work and enjoy their job and they get along. And it's creating this positive culture um, in the in this work environment. And he specifically points out that the reason that people like the performance management system is because it works. Um, he even reports some data that they reduced turnover in an organization by half in just three months. Um, that it has both short and long term effects. And that it needs no formal psychological training in order to do it. It maximizes performance. It creates that enjoyable work environment that I mentioned. This sounds like some snake oil here that you're <laughs> selling me, Abraham. I mean, it kind of does. But he's not. <laughs> he's not. He's not making the case that this will solve all organizational problems. Just that this overall system is likely to have these outcomes. And then the last two that he boasts are that it enhances relationships and it creates an open system. And part of what he means by an open system here is like, this isn't just tricks. This isn't this manipulative, sneaky system where people don't know what's going on. It should be really clear and well spelled out what's happening so that um, people can use it. And it's not this like shadow government thing. It is um, people are, are open and transparent about what's going on. And I haven't really said what the performance management system is. So he really just describes performance management as, I mean, kind of just generally what we've been talking about with OBM. And that is uh, the techniques derived from these operant learning principles to create a positive work environment by using things like positive reinforcement, encouragement, leadership, feedback and these other systems to make uh, to make the environment a place that is that brings out the best in people. And so it's actually not anything really 
specific, but it's useful to bring up because it can also go under that name. All right. So the next section that we have, uh, I think our last section really here is safety and ethics. Yeah. There's a whole field inside of um, organizational behavior management. I don't mean field. I guess it's a particular area of focus for many people who do research and work in this area mm -hmm. that's focusing specifically on safety in the workplace. And this is often referred to as um, BBS or um, behavior-based safety. Yeah. Okay. And they talk about essentially two components of this being either external change or internal change, and that both of those things are necessary for to, to create the safe environment. And external change refers to modifying equipment, doing training for staff, um, doing training for leadership, having reminder signs and other signs around that, are, that should be helpful in facilitating those safe things, um, checklists. Um, and anything of that nature that is the on that preventative angle. Yes. So make sure we have the right equipment, the right type of clothing, all the expectations are clear on the, that front end to minimize the risk. And on the internal side, what that really means is teaching your employees, giving them the skills and training so that they can um, make sure that they are engaging in the safe behaviors and they're reducing the risk for themselves. Okay. Kind of has a little bit of that one minute manager feel. Yeah, absolutely. It does. And so again, this is not to blame employees for when bad things happen to them, mm -hmm. but if you can teach them the skills to um, do all of the safe behaviors that are involved in a particular performance, then that means that they're less likely to get hurt. And that's a win-win situation. You yes. Know? We don't want people to get hurt in organizations, not just because of lawsuits or workers comp, but because like we don't want people to get hurt. They're that, human, yes. Yeah. And when, so they really are bringing the actions in line with our values with respect to treating people the humanistically and ensuring a safe work environment, which I think everybody deserves. And so um, a lot of the safety stuff comes into identifying and minimizing risky situations, doing as much as possible to prevent injury. And there's one thing specifically I was interested in, um, in ergonomics. And that okay. yeah. yeah. And so that refers to the way that the environment is arranged in such a way that it facilitates those safe behaviors. And so I did a little project where I worked in a coffee shop and very low stakes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, people could get burned, but um, we were actually just looking at the uh, how how efficient their system was. And what they wanted to do was um, the way that they had their equipment set up. For them to make a, a cup of coffee required them to like go back and forth across the little kitchen area like four or five times just to make one one latte or something. And so what the the project was to look at what if we just put all of this equip, equipment in like a, a row so that you move down more like a um, kind of like an assembly line. Yes, as exactly. opposed to this like butterfly effect where you're all over the place. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, so more of that assembly line feel of like do this, then do this, do this, and it goes in order, ending at sort of the coffee bar where the drink is produced. Two questions. Did you count the number of steps taken? Yes. Second question. Did people enjoy it when you streamlined it? Um, or was it more like this monotonous process? It was neither of those things. They mostly seemed indifferent, but we were... <laughs> <laughs> We were like, hey, we at least made it seem like it was more efficient. And they're like, eh, we had it, but this is fine too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm like, I, I worked, I asked because I worked in a, I had a project that was through school and my master's program. We went into a grocery store chain, um, one that's really Publix down in Florida. Yeah. And it was fun. We looked at some things, but it was largely the same thing. Like we, we helped a little and it was like, hey, look, it's measurable. But it wasn't like you made my life so much better. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and that's the purpose of these projects weren't necessarily to change the world. Yeah, It was exactly. mostly to see like 
on a very small scale, what would this look like? And then and can you imagine or try and draw a parallel to between that and some like larger scale organization? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the, yeah, the basic ergonomics of things like simply putting handles on things that need to be carried rather than have people try and pick them up from the bottom. Yeah. Arranging it so that there is places for two people to carry, um, making it so that storage fits in a particular way or is color coded. Um, just arranging the way that things are shaped so that they contour more easily to way, to the way that we move and manipulate objects. All of that's wrapped up in the side of in this ergonomics thing. I have it, my entire like studio set up in my workplace settings to where I don't have to move as much as I necessarily want to yeah right like it is as efficiently as possible yeah yeah and um another part of and that i mean the ergonomics that was like what i was just talking about another part of the safety thing though is better access to safety systems making sure they're clearly labeled that there's training on how to get to them and how to use them when you do um that all of that is involved in not only the preventative angle but how to react to situations of danger when they happen yeah so, so the little red little signs that say like eyewash station and all that it's not like hidden in the corner but it's like actually out where your equipment's at and, and clearly visible sort of things yeah. yeah exactly at my work for example where the first aid kit is there's a big giant like red cross right over it so that we know where to go find it if we ever need it yeah um Another one is just to have those frequent trainings to make sure everyone is up to date and well practiced at all of the things that are going to be safety behaviors. Yep, this is something I've helped implement. Um, oftentimes, I've been in systems where it's like a yearly training, and so my first thing is like, okay, how do we uh, systems wise get to the point where we can start doing those quarterly? Yeah, how do we move those to monthly? Which ones need to be quarterly versus monthly? And this is just like if you're ever going to be CPR trained, that you have to get you have to renew that certification every couple of years. Yep. Um. So and make sure that you are on up to date on all the current procedures. And if you haven't used them in the last couple of years, that you get a refresher course on how to do it. Build up that uh, that habit and that practice with that sort of thing. And another way that you can deal with the safety is to practice the correct behavior in a non-dangerous sort of simulation environment. I mean, they do this with pilots all the time. This kind of comes back to the muscle memory idea. Practicing right. under the right cues, right? Exactly. So if you might practice with like a virtual reality machine of some way of like how you interact with things that you're not actually doing it in a place where you could get harmed, mm -hmm. but it has all the same contextual features of that harmful environment and you can practice doing it safely and get feedback on that without the risk. An interesting other angle to look at that I've thought on this a few times is like if you take those dangerous situations out yes it's more safe safe to practice in those situations but like are you re increasing the likelihood that like those won't be taken seriously in the future it's possible and I think that the other part about this then that's important is to have the real world world practice where you're shadow shadowing a mentor or a veteran someone who okay. really knows what they're doing yeah and that way you can be in that real situation and it's not that you're just teaching yourself to be desensitized to the gravity of the situation um, there is both the practice in terms of the the low intensity, low stakes, and that can be fun. And maybe people have, you know, they're silly about it and whatnot. But then when you're out there in the actual situation, have someone who knows what they're doing so that yeah. you can be a part of that real life situation. That can be part of that uh, training as well. So it's building some competence in certain areas, but it's not the end all be all. Exactly yeah. correct. Now, in terms of both the the safety and the ethics, the reason I wanted to group these together is because I think they're inherently related. And the ethics referring to this values portion of 
we're not just here to like minimize lawsuits, but we're here to improve like human health because they're going here for a job. Like they shouldn't have to worry about their lives when they're yeah. going to a job. Um, I mean, there are obviously there are jobs that are more dangerous than others, but as much as possible, re- reducing that risk so that you understand going into it that you're probably going to come out of it. That's yeah. what most people want when they're going. And some people do take those higher risk jobs because they are they're really important, mm-hmm. and that's great. And you know, we appreciate the people who do that. And Hashtag hazard pay. Yeah. And at the same <laughs> time, <been> there. <laughs> most people go in expecting they're going to be able to come home again and that they should have that opportunity as much as possible, right? Yes. And so inside of these trainings is is that ethics of the, the value of human life and, and work and what, what, these, what this is all about. And also this is – there's this concept of what's called externalities. Have you heard of this one? No. This is related to sort of what you meant about the the effect of the change in a, in a work environment. And so it's not just, hey, great, we got our employees to work more. Hooray. Yeah. You know, there's also considering what does that mean for them? Are you getting people to work harder for the same amount of pay? Yeah. Are you getting people to produce a lot more but have like actual fewer opportunities to grow? And so it's considering what is the effect of this for the employees. That's part of this ethics angle. Okay. And I mean yeah. that and that's almost not even an externality, a real externality. I mean it is kind of, but externality refers to the other unintended consequences like okay, let's say we get this um we're going to take this perfume company that yeah. uses whale blubber. I don't know. I'm making this up. <laughs> but they're using some rare resource that is uh, a finite resource to make their product. And like, okay, cool. Well, we're going to produce, we're going to increase their efficiency so they can make more, 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 more of their stuff and sell it. Well, that also means that we're killing all of the whales in the ocean. Yeah. Like that's an externality. Or it's creating all of these one-time use disposable products that are filling up our landfills. Yeah. And so it's thinking about all of the unintended um, outcomes of any type of intervention related to things like the environment, the uh, impact of the economy, uh, the people who work there. And so like it's all well and good to make business efficient, but always keeping in mind what are our values and what else is going to be affected by this change. So it's the outcomes of why we do what we do, but it's also the outcomes of why we don't do what we don't do. Sure. Right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, on a serious note, um, one of the biggest lessons I learned, and it's been extremely helpful and you just hit on it, is not only do we need to pay attention to the outcomes and like what's going on, but also like why are we not seeing these other things happening, right? Right. It's all the not behavior, the stuff not happening in this context. It can sometimes shed a lot of light as to like why the certain things are happening right now. And that comes back to when you pointed out um, – in, in the organization where you work, like sometimes you'll have a solution that solves five problems but creates two more. Yeah. It's that creating two more that's part of those externalities. And a lot of times we can't predict what those will be. But mm-hmm. over time as we get better and better at this, we, we should be able to get better at predicting what those things are going to be and then how to anticipate them and prevent them from being a problem. Yep. And I've always taken that also in a, in a situation is where like we all, I usually work with folks in HR or organizational development when we, we craft these sort of solutions. We figure out which ones are likely to happen. Are we okay with it? Communicate those as much as we can um, up, up front. What do you call that? You call that uh, not feedback, feed forward. Feed right? forward, yeah. So feed forward, we do that. Um, and then it's just group like leadership slash mentality in the organization. Of like, hey, we're going to take a step forward, see what hiccups pop happen, and then we're going to reiterate. 
we're going to step forward, step forward, step forward. Awesome. Right? Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, I think most organizations are going to try and do that anyway. Um, but at least within the organizational behavior management approach, it's, it's pretty systematized and they have a lot of tools for yeah. how to approach that in that systematic way. Is that all the ethics angles that you wanted to hit here? I mean, yeah, for the most part, it's understanding that when we're doing organization behavior management or anyone, not just you know us, or but whoever's out there yeah. doing this behavioral psychology or organizational psychology, this isn't being manipulative, right? The point is, again, to create that positive work environment that is safe and is is actively caring for people um, and their place of work and having respect for them as human beings in their lives. Love it. All right, ready to take home? Yep, let's wrap it up. All right, so my kind of three bullet points would be first, there are a lot of resources that are out there. We're going to so link many. a bunch of them. You have a whole library of just books on this. Yeah, yeah. I wrote up a blog post one time, I think, with 12 different links. Um, nice. And you included probably 12 more. So <laughs> we, we have a lot of resources out there. Anything from some free things to kind of check out to things that you can go pay for. Uh, check those in the show notes on the website. Next thing, the degree uh, and like certificate programs are out there for people that are interested in learning more. Um, my two cents is sometimes those are a good move. Sometimes you can just work within your organization and work on these sort of things. Kind of depends on what your background is, right? How much training you have when it comes to like these principles or not. That's yep. my two cents. That's fair. Um, and then the next thing is last point is really, it requires a lot of skill sets, but it's not necessarily the ones that you learn in books all the time. Like it's very heavily, like those are important, but it was the experience and the mentorship in these contexts that have helped me. And I learned so much that, I can bring to the table things when it comes to organizational behavior management, but uh, HR, like <laughs> I never realized how valuable that perspective would be when it came to implementing things. So I'm like, hey, based on behavior, like, and what I know about cues and these sort of things, we should do this. I'm like, well, you can't really do that, but you can do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> and organizational development also brought that in. And it wasn't like I was being unethical and proposing those sort of things. It was just like little minute things, like in nonprofit law that I just did not know that were out there. Sure. So it's been really useful to have a lot of people surrounding me with those. Um, and at the end of the day, it's much, I guess the take homes is much more learning about how to apply these sort of principles with group behavior in that business context. Yeah. And so, I mean, just to hit the point before that organizational behavior management, what that, what that means, that, that description, that label is just, that's applying behavior psychology to a workplace or other organization where you have those people working together. Right. And this differs from other approaches, as I mentioned, industrial organizational psychology, often just referred to as IO, because in the OBM perspective, it focuses on those measurable behaviors and on those actionable results so that, um, it's, those are things that can be objectively looked at and there's not as much sort of evaluation of like the relative worth of people or their contributions, mm -hmm. just saying here are, here's what's happening. Here are our goals and here's other, other considerations around what might happen in this situation. And uh, there's a lot of important stuff to consider in here. Um, I, we mentioned several uh, overall strategies and, um, so you can find those in some of the references that we linked in the show notes. Um, in addition to that, just always keeping in mind the ethical considerations, and especially around things like safety and those externalities, those things we don't necessarily plan for. But pretty much that's uh, that's what I got on OBM. Awesome. So now that you've learned, immediate feedback is super important and a part of this. <laughs> go write your review. Help us out. Yeah. Help us out. Give us feedback. Thank you yes. so much. Uh, I think that's it. This is Ryan O. This is Abraham. It's time to sign off. We're out. listening to why we do what we do 
Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by our amazing patrons. Thank you. If you like what you heard, consider becoming a patron by heading to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts or share this episode with your friends. If you have any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Find us at WWD Podcast on your favorite social media platforms. You can learn more about this and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There, you'll find links as well as detailed and shareable show notes. Why We Do What We Do is researched and produced by Abraham, Ryan O, Shane, and Miranda. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Brassier with music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Thanks for listening, and we hope you have an awesome day. If, all right, I just want to note that if I'm the one editing this, I'll note to myself to take all of those cuts <laughs> and put them at the tail end. Yeah. So, paper for... I should totally be an outtake. All right, yeah, so paper for porn... Are you kidding me? <laughs> <laughs> that was great. All right, I'm in a good mood for this now. Here we go. Take three. All right, yes, paper for... God damn it. What's up with my voice right now, dude? What's going on here? Boop. All right, so there's paper. Why is that so hard to say, dude? Pay for performance. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing this shit on purpose. I know. <laughs> that makes it better. <laughs> All right, so that's pay for performance. I can't say it. You got to do this. All right. So that's pay for performance. Now, performance management.